0: morning, if you will, look at Psalm 119. We'll be there in just a moment. Psalm 119. If you were here last week, you know, I started us on a brand new journey, and it's a journey that what every believer needs to know. You know, it doesn't matter how long you've walked with the Lord, the most seasoned saint has a demon of doubt, get a hold of them every now and then and try to turn them every which way but loose. And it's so important for us as a church to remind one another of those things that are solid and that are unchanging. And, and in the times where everything's going so crazy, we need that anchor. We need that, uh, those truths to hold us very firmly into the depths of our faith. And that's what this series is really about. Last week we looked at this, that God loves you and there's nothing about that will ever change. And that is so imperative for us to know there's nothing we could do to cause God to love us any more or any less than he does right now. And that assurance really interprets itself into us being assured of our salvation, that nothing about that can ever change. It's done by Christ. It's not done by us, not any effort of our own, and it's settled and sealed in heaven. So today, I want to take a next step. The next thing that I think every believer needs to absolutely know and to be reminded of over and over again in their spiritual walk is this. The Bible can be trusted as the eternal Word of God. The Bible can be trusted as the eternal, inerrant, infallible Word of God, truth without any mixture of error whatsoever. And I know that's a bold thing to say in the world in which we live right now, but this is absolutely the premise that this church has been built on and the reason it has been so successful so many, many years. I want every one of you here to be able to leave this place with a renewed confidence that the Bible you hold in your hand is God's love letter to you and is there to tell you how to believe and how to behave. And all we have to do is bring ourselves in line with that. Okay? Now, why can I say that with such absolute sincerity? How how can I say that with a straight face? How can I say that and, and know that this is absolutely, incontrovertibly true? Well, I take you to Psalm 119. It's right in the middle of your Bible. And in Psalm 89, I want you to turn here. And this is actually a passage that Jesus would refer to. But look with me at this, Psalm 119, verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled, is accomplished, is finished in heaven. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, you are the one who hovered over all of those who had a part of these words being uttered and recorded. And you have overseen the protection of them throughout millennia. You have withstood every attack of humanism and science. And your word still stands eternal in the heavens. And your people, your children today, Lord, we need to be encouraged. We need to be reminded that we can absolutely trust our Bible as your message to us today. So, Lord, I pray even now that you will instill a boldness and a confidence and an assurance in us like we've never had before, that we can fall in love with the Bible and the God of the Bible, the eternal Word of the Bible, our living Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. How can I have absolute assurance that God's Word is indeed what it says it is, that the Bible can be trusted. I want to give you several reasons for that. But the very first of all is this is what Jesus believed. Jesus trusted it. Jesus trusted at his time the Bible consisted of what we would know as the Old Testament. He was there to part of the writing of the New. But when he referred to the Scriptures, he was referring to the Old Testament. And he referred to them as absolutely true. There was no question whatsoever in his mind. Now, for me, this kind of settles it. If the eternal Word of God says this is the Word of God, then I don't see how he can be wrong about that. I don't see how he can, he can be wrong about that truth. If he is the Word, the embodiment of the Word, the Word became flesh who dwelt among us. But I want you to see some things. First of all, Jesus saw that the Bible and quoted the Bible as authoritative, authoritative. Matthew twenty two twenty nine. when he was confronting the Sadducees, he said, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. See, the scriptures were the truth, and they didn't follow the scriptures, so they were in error. So they were authoritative to Jesus Christ. They were truth. And I think we need to grasp that not only that in Luke 11:29 uh, he refers to especially uh, the history and even the poetry in the bible as being authoritative the second thing he claimed that the scriptures were eternal that they were eternal And in in Matthew uh, 25, 35, he says, I tell you a truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until it is all fulfilled. I mean, that's Jesus speaking about what we understand as the Old Testament. It bothers me deeply that there are very popular pastors uh, preaching today and saying, just disqualify the Old Testament. Just do away with the Old Testament. There's nothing there, uh, you know, but, but a bunch of rules. We just need to focus on Jesus and the New Testament. Well, Jesus and the New Testament looked to the Old Testament. This was his source. This was his authority. And he unequivocally kept it as his truth without any mixture of error. Jesus referred to it as the Word of God. In, in Mark seven thirteen, he he said again, Thus you nullify the Word of God by your traditions that you have handed down. No question whatsoever, Jesus understood the Old Testament as authoritative, as truth, and reliable. As a matter of fact, it's interesting that some of the Old Testament stories that have most often been attacked in the world we live in are those that he specifically said that he believed in. He talks about the prophets. He talks about Noah and and the big fish. He talks about Adam and Eve. He talks about Sodom and Gomorrah. He talks about uh, Jonah. He talks about people and places in the Bible as being true people, real places. He was convinced. Now I don't know about you, but as a Christ follower, when my disciple, when my Lord and my master says, you can depend on this, then I'm going to depend on this. So right off the bat, that's where I'm going to start. But I want to go further with this. Not only can you believe the Bible because Jesus did, you can believe it because of its scientific accuracy. Its scientific accuracy. And they say, wow, now that's, that's a strange thing to say. Doesn't science often attack the Bible? Oh, yes, Goodness it always has and it always will. But you need to know something about science and you need to know something about the Bible. Here's what you need to know. You need to know science and you need to know the Bible. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, see, people who know science many times never read or disqualify the Bible. People who are really big on the Bible many times will disqualify science. Don't do either one of those. Hold the two together. Because the more the scientist works, the more he's going to verify in his laboratory what we already know by faith in the scriptures and in the Lord Jesus Christ. So don't be afraid about that. But here's something you need to understand about science. Science is always in a state of flux. Science is always changing. Because it's learning. A best scientist will tell you, we're always learning. And so because we're always learning, we're always changing. There are very few things that are hard and fast anymore that used to be held as incontrovertible by scientists. If you ever have the opportunity to go to, to Paris, you go to the, to the great library there, the Louvre, and they have a whole wing of the library dedicated to science books. Listen, if you lay them down, there are three and a half miles of science books there. All of them have been discarded as being an error. All of them. Because they have been proven wrong by science as science continues to grow. Science is always in a state of flux. The Word of God never changes. We just read that a moment ago. Forever and ever, your Word is eternal in the heavens. It doesn't change. And we need to understand that and hold on to that. But the Bible is not a science book, but when it speaks about scientific things, it's accurate. Long before man really understood the cycle of water, known as hydrology, they found in the Bible how it really works. Now, what this cycle is, you know, water in the ocean and in the rivers, it evaporates, okay, goes up, And then it condenses and distills in the air. It turns into water droplets. It falls back down, nourishes the ground, flows into the rivers, out. And then this cycle goes over and over and over again. Hydrology. The oldest book of the Bible is the book of Job. Now, I don't mean oldest in its content, but oldest in how ancient the literature it really is. It is the the book of Job. And here's, here's what Job says in Job 36, 27, and 28. He, God, draws up the drops of water. They distill, and rain then comes from the midst, and the clouds pour down and drip upon man continually. Now, he's not speaking about science, but he's speaking Scientifically. The oldest piece of literature we know. Now, was Job a scientist that understood all this? No. But Holy Spirit did because he was part of the creating of all of that. So hydrology was taught in the Bible long before men ever understood it. The Bible teaches that the earth is suspended in space. The ancient Egyptians thought that the earth was held up by, by pillars. The ancient Hindus believed it was carried on the back of giant elephants The Greeks thought that a huge strong man named Atlas carried the world around. But the scripture says plainly that that the Bible says that he, he stretched out the heavens over the empty space and he hangs the earth upon nothing. Before science understood this, the Bible declared it. Understand that the Bible is not a science book, but when it speaks about things having to do with science, it's always true. And there's no other part of the Bible that has been attacked more ferociously than creation. And it has been poo-pooed so much. Our kids are beginning to learn, just now beginning to learn in school today, that evolution not only is a theory, it's a theory chock full of holes. And if you want to have your faith really bolstered, go to the Creation Science Museum or go to visit the ark, and you will see the scientific evidence behind creation. You don't have to apologize for the Word of God. It is the eternal Word of God. The Bible teaches that the world is is round and not flat. The, the Bible teaches that the stars cannot be numbered. The early astrologers were convinced they could number them. And they had numbered them just over a little over a thousand. And then they adjusted it 50 years later to be an extra, another 50. But then they came up to an invention called a telescope. <laughs> and then they began to find out that the stars are too numerous to be numbered. Exactly what the Bible has always said. The Bible talks about the physiology of man, about how man is made up. And the Bible taught long before man understood it that life is in the blood. That life is in the blood. Early medical science didn't understand that. And, and, and they would bleed people. They would leech people. George Washington probably died because he was bled too much. He was leached too much because it was bad blood and it had to be taken out. Not understanding that life is in the blood. And, and you, you, you take out the blood, you take out life. Medicine is constantly changing. Anybody here over 50 years old knows that. <laughs> Medicine is constantly in a, in a state of flux. I mean, I remember when, when the reports came out, Don't eat eggs. Oh, they're bad for you. They call cholesterol to go up through the roof and horrible stuff. Within a couple of years, they introduced the incredible edible egg and started encouraging us to be eating eggs. You know, then they came out and said, oh, sugar, sugar. Oh, sugar's bad for you. It's bad for your heart. It's bad for your bloodstream. It's bad for everything. Don't eat sugar. So we, we came up with the pink stuff and then found out that it was causing cancer. And then we came up with the blue stuff and found out it was making your energy dissolve. And then we came up with the yellow stuff, and everybody just goes on and on. And now, just a couple of weeks ago, I, 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 was, I was reading on, uh, on Fox Medical Area that now they're saying you need to eat more sugar. Sugar is good for you. It helps your heart. Medical science is in a constant state of flux. It, it is because it's science, and they're continuing to learn. And so don't be surprised if at one minute they're attacking something the Bible says, and another minute they're standing behind it. You know they're, they're, they're not, you know, they're not two-faced, they're not schizophrenic, it's the nature of science. So understand that the Word of God is eternal. It is always there, and it's always true. And let the scientists work. The longer they work, they're going to affirm in science what we know already by faith. So we know this because of its scientific accuracy. We also know the Bible can be trusted because of its historical accuracy. The historical accuracy. This is so important. Again, the archaeologists. Let the archaeologists dig. Thank God for archaeology. Uh, I, they, they continue to, to come up with stuff that affirms the Word of God. But when they come up with something that doesn't seem to affirm the Word of God, they immediately think the Word of God is wrong. I say, let them keep on digging. Eventually, they'll find out that what we accept by faith, they can affirm by archaeology. For years and years, archaeologists said we need to take the book of Daniel out of the Bible. They just need to take it out because it's an error. Why? Because it referred to a Babylonian king by the name of Belshazzar. And they could find nothing in all of the ancient literature about a king named Belshazzar. And because they couldn't find anything about it, it was assumed then that Daniel is wrong. It's an error. We need to do away with it entirely. But not too terribly long ago, in some diggings in the area in Iraq, they uncovered the Nabonidus cylinder. Well, now, they knew who Nabonidus was. He was listed among all of the kings. But what they found on the Nabonidus cylinder was that he had a son, and that Nabonidus ruled the north, and his son ruled the south, And his name was, guess what? Belshazzar. Yes. Let them dig. Don't be be threatened by this. Don't be threatened. Let them keep digging. They'll dig long enough and they'll find out what we already know to be absolutely, absolutely true. And one of the things they continue to uncover is so many new, fresh manuscripts of the Bible. Now, I'm not going to bore you with this. I do a six-week class on how the Bible came to be, and maybe I'll get to do that sometime here. But we go deeper into it at that point. But here's the thing. Many manuscripts of uh, accepted works are totally accepted as historically accurate and we don't have that many copies of them, and those that we have are hundreds or thousands of years older than the original. For instance, uh, I, I had to read Homer's Iliad in school. I don't know if you all had to read that, but Homer's Iliad, you know, and and, and that book is one of the most famous books, uh, Greek books ever written. There are 643 copies of it. The oldest one is 900 years after the original was written. And yet it's accepted as absolutely verifiable historical literature. We need to read that. Uh, not only that, Julius Caesar's writings, The Gaelic Wars. We only have 10 copies of that. Only 10. And the oldest one we have is 1,000 years after he wrote the original. It's a copy. And yet nobody questions the historicity of Gaelic Wars. Our Bible we have just a little bit less than 6,000 different manuscripts. Some of them dating far back as was just in a few decades of the original. And even when we find some that are even older, one of the greatest things that happened in the 1940s was the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And among the many fragments and whole books that we have there was the book of Isaiah. I've had the privilege of seeing that ancient scroll in Jerusalem. But... Before they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, the, the, the oldest one they had, this one that they found, was a 1,000 years newer, well, older, than the latest one they had. And so you know what they did once they finally got it un- unrolled to where they could carefully look at? It? They compared it with the one that was a 1,000 years newer. And there's no significant differences. A couple of spelling differences here and there. Uh, Cities are named by different names, so there would be a different name in one than the other. But that happens in our day. I mean, Constantinople is now Istanbul. I mean, you know, cities change all the time. But they're absolutely accurate. So why is it that those who study manuscripts would question the historicity of the Bible when we've got more manuscripts older and more accurate than the ones that they have in other parts of history. You can depend on the Word of God that you hold in your lap as historically accurate. Historically accurate. Jesus believed it. Science affirms it. it, They're historically accurate. The third thing is this. It has such a remarkable unity. Let me tell you something about your Bible you may not know. This is not one book, okay? Many of you know this, but others of you don't. Somebody didn't start in Genesis and write write it all the way to Revelation and then be done. That's not the book you hold in your hand. This is actually 66 independent different books. They're written by 40 different authors over a period of 1,600 years. These people lived in 13 different countries, three different continents, and spoke three different languages. And yet these books have one message, the redeeming of mankind by God Almighty. That's just phenomenal. That's just phenomenal. One of the professors at one of our seminaries was challenged by one of the students, and he said, look, Choose any library in the world. And, and he chose the Library of the Louvre in Paris. He said, Now go to that book, and I want you to pick out 66 different books written by 40 different authors, written in over 1,600 years on 13 countries, three different continents, three different languages. Choose any 66 books and bring them together, and let me see one message. And that student said, That's impossible. And the professor said, no, that's inspiration. That's the inspiration of the eternal Word of God. So Jesus believed it. It's historically accurate. It's scientifically accurate. It has such a wonderful unity. But let me talk about this. This is one of the things that marks your Bible as over against any other piece of Holy Writ in existence today. Only Christianity of the world religions, only Christianity... Serves and worships a God of prophecy. A God of prophecy. One who knows the future and will speak it to his prophets, who will put it in writing, and then it comes true. There are no... You don't find that in Mohammedism. You don't find it in Hinduism. You don't find it in Shintoism. You don't find it in any other religion on planet Earth except yours. And the prophecy abounds in the Scripture not only fearlessly being put forth, but absolutely being fulfilled. Now, I want if you follow with me for something. For somebody to write 600 years before an event so clearly as if they were looking at it under magnifying glass, wouldn't that be pretty astounding? 600 years before an event, and yet describe that event with such incredible clarity that it's like they were right there on the scene seeing it happen. That'd be pretty phenomenal. What would be the likelihood? What would be the mathematical possibility of prophecy coming true? A man who who is head of the uh, 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 MIT, a department having to do with probabilities, his name was Stoner, he came up with this. He said, let's just choose eight Bible prophecies about Jesus. Now, you've got to remember, there's 350 of them. But let's just choose the eight absolutely most uncontested these were fulfilled by Christ. What's the probability? that hundreds of years before Christ was born, that, that somebody would utter such incredible, clear, precise prophecy. What's the probability of that coming true? And so with all of the supercomputers they had and all of the people working there, they finally came up, here's the probability of it happening, one in 10 to the 17th power. Now that probably don't mean a whole lot to you. <laughs> but that's 100 quadrillions. Okay? And some of you don't have that money in the bank, so you don't understand that big a number. How how do you grasp a number like this? And so he was he was wanting to communicate it to plain folks like you and I. And so here's what he figured. He took the landmass of Texas, no small state, okay? The landmass of Texas, and he said, if you could cover the state of Texas two feet deep with silver dollars. It would take 400 quadrillion silver dollars to cover the state of Texas two foot deep. Now, take one of those silver dollars and mark it with an X and bury it somewhere in Texas. Then take a man in Dallas, blindfold him, tell him you can go any direction you want to go, as far as you want to go, just don't leave Texas. You have one chance To pick up a silver dollar and that be the one that's marked with the X. That's 10 to the 17th power. And that's just for eight prophecies being foretold and coming true. Over 300 were written of Christ. And hundreds more were written of other things that would happen. God is a God of prophecy and his prophecies come true every time. Those that haven't come true yet are those that are not supposed to come true yet. We're waiting on the end time for that to happen. You serve a God who's written a book that is unlike any other book on planet Earth. And you have access to it. And it is, you can believe in it. Jesus did. It's historically and it's scientifically accurate. It is consistent in its unity. It fulfills prophecy. But let me give you the last reason. And it's probably the most subjective, but it's the most, the most precious to me. You can trust the Bible in your lap as God's eternal word to you because of the way it transforms lives. People who believe the word of God and apply it to their lives, their lives are radically changed and transformed. I tell you what, I'm far from perfect but I'm way different the way I used to be because of the Word of God. This is a dependable book. This is one that you can put your life onto. It changes lives, it changes families, it puts families back together that were irreparably broken. It gives hope back to the hopeless. It changes communities when it's allowed to. Can I tell you a story that comes out of, of World War II? Prior to World War II, a missionary was en route to the Far East, and his ship had to stop on Okinawa in order to be refueled and refitted and so on and so forth. So he had a few days there. On the island, he had opportunity to lead two of the people who lived on the island to faith in Christ, and he left them a Bible. And then he left. He was there only a couple of days. Two brand-new converts and a Bible. They went back to their village. Well, time happened, and the world was pulled into a world war. Okinawa was the site of some horrendous things that happened. And after after the war was over, a war correspondent was visiting Okinawa. And he writes how they were poverty-stricken, disease-infected, living in horrible, horrible hovels and terrible, terrible conditions. But as he traveled towards the center of the island, he came to a little community. And he was astounded. He had a top sergeant with him that was, that was uh, taking him around and protecting him. This community, everything was clean. They were well-ordered. They were well-educated. They were healthy. They were well-fed. A- and they asked, what, What's it, everywhere on the island is different. And so someone brought them to these two men, and they were the two men the missionary had led to faith in Christ. They had come back to their little village with the Bible, and they had shared the truths of the Scriptures. And that community decided they were going to build their lives on the Scriptures. And they survived the ravages of the war, but not only that, they were a jewel in the midst of the destruction there. You can read about that phenomenal little community. I don't know if I say this word right, but the name of the community is Shemabuke. And the journalist stayed there to find out what was the secret of the power. And here's what his, his um, top sergeant said that was with him. He said, you know, maybe we've been fighting this battle using the wrong weapons. Indeed, changed lives are the greatest power that you can point to of how the Bible is indeed the Word of God. I want you to leave here today without any question whatsoever that the Bible you hold in your lap can be trusted for you to build your life on, for you to know how you're to believe and how you're to behave. It's all right there. And this church has been built on that premise. And if you're looking for a place that you can be that honors the Word of God and seeks to follow the Word of God and people who want to live according to the Word of God, you've just found a home because that's who we are and that's what we do. If you haven't come to the place that you've asked Jesus to be the boss of your life, this may sound a little strange to you. But once you've asked Christ to come into your life, Holy Spirit living in you opens your eyes in a way you did not even know possible to read and to be blessed by this book. So what I want you to know, what I want you to remind yourself of over and over again is this book can be trusted. I can build my life. I can raise my family. I can do my business. I can do everything according to this book. Will you pray with me? Father God, I just pray that Holy Spirit would send an unusual sense of confidence upon us. That in the same way that we can know that we're eternally saved, we can know that your word is eternally settled in the heavens. And we can build our lives, we can build our families, we can build our businesses and schools and communities on the solid rock of the eternal word of God. Holy Spirit, Bolster our courage. We have nothing to be ashamed of and nothing to apologize for by believing in your word. Infuse us with confidence. And Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you and doesn't know how they can trust this word, Holy Spirit, will you encourage them to come to talk to me or someone in our Connection Center today so we can share with confidence into their lives as well. You're the one that transforms our lives. You heal our brokenness, and you give us purpose and direction. And we bless you for that. Thank you. Holy Word of God, whose name is Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.